Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following presentation was presented at a conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future. It was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert Society of Ushaw, and was held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. The paper was delivered by Father Nicholas Schofield of the Westminster Diocesan Archives and is entitled The Replanting of the English College at Dowie in England. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's good to be here. Um, if it does get too cold for you, do feel free to run up and down the stairs or rub your, rub your hands together. I might have to do the same myself. I realize as I stand here that I have a bit of a disadvantage because I'm a southerner and I come from a, a southern diocese, Westminster, and there would have been a time when coming here would be like Daniel and the lion's den. So please be patient and please don't jeer every time I mention St. Edmund's or Westminster. Little remains today of the English College at Dowie, as I'm sure many of you know. The Place Carnot, which stands on the site, is a rather unattractive open space with lots of bus stops, a Domino's pizza, and perhaps a nod, intended or not, to the English connections, a brasserie named after St. George. One of the few survivals, the tabernacle that once stood in the college church, was restored by the local museum for this 450th anniversary. Elsewhere, there's a shrine to the Dowie Martyrs in the Collegiate Church, and the Association William Allen still keeps the memory alive of the college. Obliterated from the town, the English College seems to belong to a very distant chapter of our Catholic history. And yet, the last collegian to have studied there, John Penswick, brother of the bishop of that name, only died in, on the 30th of October, 1864. Well, that's typical archivist speak, isn't it? Only died in 1864. But he lived long enough to see the restoration of the hierarchy and the conversions of Newman and Manning. Looking back with great nostalgia to his youthful days at Dowie, he recalled, there was a sort of prestige acting silently but efficaciously in the breasts of all the inmates when they reflected that their house had been the home of so many eminent men who had done honor to religion by their learned writings, that had been the alma mater of at least 160 pious and devoted priests who had laid down their lives in defense of religion, and of a more numerous body still who, having received their education at the college, abided the loss of lands and liberty sooner than forsake their religion. Surely this was a home to live in. No one ever left it without reluctance. No one ever recollected it without delight. Now, older men often become rather nostalgic about their schools, but I wonder how many people here could look back to their school or seminary and say, surely this was a home to live in. I don't think I could. But as far as Penswick was concerned, at the time of the French Revolution, the college was at the height of its fame and prosperity. As we all know, the college was part of an extensive network of British colleges and religious houses overseas. And in many ways, the second half of the 18th century was not a particularly golden age for these institutions. 
The suppression of the Jesuits had led to much uncertainty and the closure, for example, of the Irish colleges at Lisbon, Seville, Santiago de Compostela, and Poitiers. The College of the English Jesuits at Saint-Omer was moved to Bruges and then Liège, while the original buildings were taken over by the English seculars from Dowie. And later in the 1780s, two further Irish colleges were closed thanks to the radical policies of Joseph II. There were also financial issues with rising taxes and living costs, many of the houses overseas were hit by financial trouble. Among them, St. Gregory's, the English seminary or house of studies in Paris, which was forced to close, at least temporarily, in 1786. Around the same time, the newly built Irish College in Paris narrowly escaped closure due to a huge tax bill from the French government. In 1781, William Gibson became the 16th president of the English College of Dowie. He was from a large Northumberland family, one of four brothers who were trained for the priesthood at Dowie, two of whom, of course, became bishops. His brother, Matthew, was vicar apostolic of the northern district between 1780 and 1790, and he was particularly aggressive towards the activities of the Catholic Committee. He fiercely defended Episcopal prerogatives, and shortly before his death, issued a pastoral letter referring to the committee's infernal stratagems. William, who was four years his junior, was very much cut from the same cloth. In Bernard Ward's assessment, he was a capable man who had more than his share of roughness of manner and bluntness of speech, and this added to a tendency to autocratic action created for him enemies throughout his life. As president of Dowie, Gibson could be seen in some ways as a visionary, pushing forwards an ambitious plan of modernization and rebuilding. He continued the unfinished rebuilding program begun in the 1720s, building a new infirmary and study place and making alterations to the dormitory. In the estimation of John Penswick, great taste was displayed in their erection and they were as commodious as they were tasteful. Even the old part of the house was so ornamented and beautified as to stand in favorable competition with the new. Numbers of students rose to 164 in 1784, to, compared to 63 in 1710 or 132 in 1740. But many complained that Gibson's reforms carried an imprudent financial risk and brought the college constantly close to bankruptcy. Many people complained of his extravagant conduct, chief amongst them Gregory Stapleton, his procurator, who was perhaps Gibson's chief critique. There were attempts to raise desperately needed money by selling some of the college's securities and appealing to use the unused funds of the English College in Rome and of the former English Jesuits. Nevertheless, the debt in Dowie increased by around 700 pounds a year. There must have been a sense of relief on both sides when Stapleton was appointed president of the former Jesuit college at Saint-Omer in 1787. But the tensions between Gibson and Stapleton would later influence the plans to replant Dowie on English soil. Criticisms had also been made about the college's ability to form effective priests and an educated laity. 
Joseph Berrington, for example, thought the Dowie priests were open, disinterested, religious, and laborious, steady in the discharge of their duties, fond of their profession, and emulous of supporting the character of primitive churchmen. But they are austere in their principles, confined in their ideas, ignorant of the world, and unpleasant in their manners. The misfortune, he added, is that to reform a college would be a 13th labor for Hercules. And I'm sure the same could be said for many colleges and seminaries down the years. Some began to support the move of Catholic education from the foreign to the domestic, so that it could be more closely monitored by bodies such as the Catholic Committee. Similar developments, incidentally, were being made in Ireland. Liam Chambers has noted that as the Irish population increased and the priest-to-people ratio steadily worsened, it must have been clear to the Irish bishops that the system of foreign education was not coping and that domestic clerical formation was an obvious alternative. And it's interesting that several bursaries were created in the 1780s, which included the provision for the possibility of education on Irish soil. Despite such developments, Gibson, as president, added new subjects to the curriculum at Dowie, including modern literature, elementary mathematics, and a renewed focus on learning French. The college has often been dismissed as an academic backwater during this period, after the, the golden years that we heard about last night, especially after the accusations of Jansenism made at the beginning of the century. Michael Sharrett has judged its courses, though, during Challoner's time as reasonably learned for undergraduate courses and definitely designed as a training for missioners to Protestant England. It's interesting that modern trends in philosophy and science were not neglected. In the 1750s, Robert Bannister introduced a course in Newtonian natural philosophy. And in the second half of the 18th century, John Locke was included in the philosophy course. A student at the time of the college's closure, Lewis Clifford, referred to the electricity room containing lots of scientific instruments. And if the college can be judged by its fruits, let's not forget that the final decades produced an eminent historian, John Lingard, and two fellows of the Royal Society and the Society of Antiquaries, John Turberville Needham and Marmaduke Tunstall. Needham, incidentally, was a natural scientist and amongst his discoveries was investigating the internal organs of a squid while he was teaching at the English College in Lisbon. And he was the first to produce a description of what came to be called Needham's sack. And that's the only uh, link I can find between the English College dowry and the reproductive organs of a squid. Something to remember next time you tuck into a plate of calamari. The college may have been situated in a French town, Catholic England beyond the seas, but it was resolutely English in its spirit. During the American Revolutionary Wars, at a time when France was allied to the rebels across the Atlantic, Charles Butler recalled that every victory which the English gained over the French was a triumph to the English boys. Their superiors were more than once admonished by the magistrates and their friends not to make their joy on these occasions too noisy. It was generally maintained that one Englishman 
can any day beat two Frenchmen. Apologise to, to any French people present. Throughout its history, the English college had of course been affected by external events, by wars and sieges and changing borders. And so it was inevitable that the revolution of 1789 would affect the life of the college. Although it was stressed that the institution was British property and the authorities of the college claimed exemptions from the new legislation, including, most notoriously, the civil constitution of the clergy of 1790. In the words of Penswick, once again, the college protested that they were not their subjects. They were not personally interested in their changes and revolutions. They were not partisans of any of the factions which then ruled or attempted to rule. They were mere strangers, enjoying there an asylum and a refuge which had been denied them at home. And yet, the concerned authorities did begin to consider the future of Dowie. Robert Smelt, the English agent in Rome, wrote to Bishop Douglas in July 1791 that the present situation of ecclesiastical affairs in France is such as to render it highly improper for our college to continue at Dowie much longer. Indeed, the new French bishops were to be considered as intruders and schismatics, and Smelt said, we cannot acknowledge or communicate with them. Dowie was one of the last towns in northern France to be affected by the revolution. There were, of course, occasional tensions. Even before the storming of the Bastille, several college windows had been smashed as a result of civil unrest. But in 1790, there were still 137 students, and life continued as it had done for over 200 years. This normality can be seen in the case of John Lingard, he entered the college in 1782 and took the mission oath in 1790, and then the following year spent his summer at home in Winchester. The ongoing revolution did not prevent his return to Dowie to begin a year as professor of grammar. As you know, talented students were often asked to interrupt their studies to teach younger boys for a year or so. Another famous alumnus, Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, entered the School of Rhetoric along with his brother Morris as late as August 1792. Collegians first had direct experience of the revolution in 1791 when a large demonstration took place in the town's main square. Two locals were lynched by the mob, hanged from the lamppost and then dragged through the streets. One of them was the printer employed by the college who had become obnoxious to the orators by the loyal tone of the press. The other was an extensive baker whom they charged with starving the people for the gratification of his avarice. It seems that John Lingard was present on that day and identified by the mob as a seminarian with cries of la colette, referring to the black skullcap commonly worn by French clerics and contrasting with the revolutionary red bonnet. He escaped thanks to the fleetness of his steps and the fact that the rather stout woman who headed the mob, being possessed of more ardor than circumspection, got stuck between two posts. <laughs> the college became an increasing target for Republican aggression and collegians began to prudently wear the revolutionary cockard 
when walking around the town. We're told that a French soldier encountered a group of students, including Daniel O'Connell, and shouted, see the young Jesuits, Capuchins, Recollects. The students ran away and very quickly returned to the college. On one famous occasion, angry knocks were heard at the college door, which was opened by the future bishop, William Pointer. According to Thomas Gillow, immediately four or five of the soldiers in a state of intoxication entered and pushed forward through the porch and the inner door into the corridor. They called out for the young men to be led out into the streets to go along with them. Dr. Pointer attempted to remonstrate, saying that the students were many of them in bed and the rest were now retiring and begged that they would not disturb them. Where are your prisons? Open your prisons, they exclaimed. We have no prisons, replied Dr. Pointer, and would have added that the young men were free and happy. But the soldiers grew furious. One drew his sword, and the consequences threatened to become serious, when in an instant, Messieurs Gillow, Silvertop, Riddle, and one or two more, as if moved by a common influence, rushed forward, and taking each of the soldiers by the arm, cried out, Vive la nation! and so drew them out into the streets. The doors were closed, and the crowd moved away to the cry of Vive la nation! Vive la liberté! The students were carried in a sort of triumphal procession through the streets of Dowie, and were out most of the night, and in this manner, the college was temporarily saved. I'm sure there's a bit of exaggeration in that account, but it gives a very vivid picture of what was going on in Dowie at the time. The college was going through its own internal dramas. Gibson had left in 1790 upon his appointment as vicar apostolic of the Northern District in succession to his brother, Matthew. His successor as president, Edward Kitchen, suffered from rather poor health and only arrived at the college two days after the students had found themselves shouting, Vive la Nation! The crisis proved to be too much for the ailing president, who returned to England after just three months in October 1791. And the agent for the college in London, Thomas Varley, criticized him for having too much faith in the French and thought he has now time to repent for not sending all away. His place was eventually taken by another semi-invalid, John Daniel, the vice president and professor of theology. And he would be the last of the Dowie presidents. Although he kept the title until his death in 1823, his effective government lasted three short years. As you might expect, student numbers began to drop. Instantly, the picture is obviously not a photo of the college during the French Revolution, but during the First World War, but gives some um, idea of perhaps uh, what might have been seen in Dowie during those dark years. Student numbers began to drop, and in January 1793, the situation was irrevocably altered by the declaration of war between France and Great Britain, partly in reaction to the execution of Louis XVI. On the 18th of February, armed guards arrived at the college and the other British institutions in the town. Rooms were sealed and the contents listed in inventories. The pretended motive of these proceedings reported one student, was to put our property in security as a storm, they said, seemed to be gathering against us from people of inferior conditions, 
among whom several rumours unfavourable to us had been spread. Many students managed to return home, and Penswick later remembered the pain of parting, the links, he said, which had united so many young persons in early friendships, in companionship, in studies, in play, and even in danger, could not be suddenly broken without a pang vibrating in many a heaving breast. It's sufficient to say that they went and that they were greatly regretted. Despite the attentions of the spiders, as the guards were nicknamed, some of the more daring students decided to enter the sealed parts of the college and save some of the great treasures. One clambered down a rope to save the more precious scientific instruments kept in the physical science room, another reminder of how important science was in the syllabus. Another climbed up a chimney to enter the president's room. Various valuables, including the college plate, or some of it, were thus carried off by four philosophers and buried in a safe place until they were rediscovered in 1863. Another student hid a box of relics, including the hair shirt of St. Thomas Beckett and the beretta of St. Charles Borromeo. These were hidden on the property itself, along with the body of St. John Southworth, and were found in 1927 during town redevelopment. Sadly, Beckett's hair shirt was thrown away by the workmen then, who thought it was just a bit of old carpet. But the Beretta of Charles Borromeo is at St. Edmund's College, and of course the body of St. John Southworth is in Westminster Cathedral. The students were first removed from Dowry in August to the relative peace of their country house. The Allies had recently captured nearby Valencian, and an attack on Dowry was thought um, imminent. The future Bishop Robert Gradwell, though, was allowed to stay in the college on account of suffering from a fever, and during his convalescence, he managed to save the Dowry diaries for posterity. Finally, on the 12th of October, 1793, the collegians were told to move to the Scots College in Dowie, where sleeping accommodation was provided in the refectory. Space was at a premium, since several suspected French aristocrats were also being held there. Pointer wrote that in the meantime, the doors of the English college were thrown open for three days, during which part of the furniture was sold, and the rest of the goods that could easily be moved and carried off was plundered by the mob. Four days later, the college community was moved to the citadel at Doulon in Picardy. In the course of the two-day journey, several further students managed to escape. And at Doulon, the 26 collegians were joined by six English Benedictines from St. Gregory's Dowie, a community that in due course would relocate to Downside. And together, they were dubbed by the Galers the Trent Deux. The stories later told by these confessors of Doulon quickly passed into Catholic and college law. There were lots of heroic escapes. Indeed, since Doulon lay in a different diocese to Dowie, the priests lacked faculties to hear confession. And so in November 1793, a party of four students climbed down a rope fixed at the top of the castle wall and disappeared into the night to apply for the appropriate dispensation from the Bishop of Amiens. I think I might have just returned home myself. but And this arrived in time for the Christmas celebrations. Conditions were harsh. 
Richard Thompson compared the first night without mattresses to a black hole, but added that never, I am persuaded, did either our superiors or the boys pass a more merry and sportful night. The following day, they were moved to a larger wind-exposed garret, although conditions were still cramped and the food rather insufficient. But communication was soon established with Gregory Stapleton, who was then imprisoned at Saint-Omer, and messages were sent to England asking for money and assistance. A window was unhinged and placed horizontally so that mass could be discreetly celebrated. Then in May 1794, a large group of new prisoners arrived, including 65 members of the English College at Saint-Omer, much to the Dowie Collegian's delight. And the French guards were reportedly astonished by the daily games, not of cat, but of leapfrog, and appropriately enough, prisoner's base. Tensions began to lessen after the fall of Robespierre in July 1794. Petitions were sent to the authorities in the hope that the prisoners would be allowed to return home. Eventually, permission was given. The boys from Saint-Omer were released in October 1794 and left the prison singing the psalm in Exitu Israel de Egypto. Shortly afterwards, on the 24th of November, it was the turn of the remaining Trent Dur. Amazingly, although they had watched fellow French prisoners be led to Madame Guillotine, the only English casualty of the imprisonment was a professor from Saint-Omer, who was in poor health already and died in July 1794. On their release, the Collegians stayed a night at Arras, and then they were kept for several months at the Irish College in Dowie. So another example of the rather limited um, interaction between those two colleges. The regime was comparatively relaxed, and in December the students were even given permission to go skating, which became such a part of life here at Ushaw. Several of them tried to visit their old college, which was now a military hospital, and they must have been shocked to find the sacristy being used as a lavatory and the church and refectory as storage space for bedding and linens. And sadly, much of the archive and library disappeared, some of the paper being pulped to make cartridge cases. And one thinks what must have been written on those cartridge cases. Only some of the files were saved, um, including those at the Westminster Diocesan Archive. Gregory Stapleton went to Paris to negotiate the prisoners' release and the issuing of passports so that they could return home. And in February 1795, he returned triumphantly to the students at Dowie and uttered the long-remembered words, Good news, my boys. Thank God we are going to England. One of those present later wrote, I believe we never in the whole course of our lives experienced such lively emotions of joy. Many of the collegians gave loud cheers of applause. And so the staff and students left Dowie for the last time on the 26th of February and in early March crossed from Calais to Dover on an American ship. The fate of the collegians was therefore various. They were dispersed all over the place. To take one year as an example, the third year divines of six students in 1792 Three left Dowie while they still could in late 1792 or early 1793. Two managed to escape from captivity, and one was numbered 
among the Trent Dur. Three of them proceeded to ordination, two of them via Old Hall Green, while of the others, Nicholas Woodcock worked as a tradesman in Preston, and John Baines was said to have married in France. Of course, the news of the closure of the English College necessitated an emergency plan so that its work could continue, if only temporarily, in England. The Vicar's Apostolic considered all sorts of options for the new Dowie. In 1792, Bishop Gibson consulted Robert Bannister, who thought that just as Dowie had moved to Reims in the 16th century during political troubles, so the Collegian should now move to the security of Brabant, or the Austrian Netherlands, or perhaps escape in small groups to Leuven. This view was shared by Bishop Wormsley of the Western District, who thought that the colleges should be kept where they are. In the first place, he said, it will save a great expense as they are in actual possession of houses properly fitted up for colleges and may probably remain undisturbed, although alarmed. Furthermore, studies would never be carried on so well in England as they are in their present situation. Theological studies in particular, which are there, publicly discussed. This is still in those comparatively early days of the, the revolution. Gibson maintained that the north of England, though, was the best location for a new dowry, given its relative seclusion and lower living costs. In May 1793, Gibson considered renting Flass Hall near Ushaw Moor and stressed, unless we begin, all will be dispersed and we shall have 20 foolish plans. But sadly, that's exactly what happened. There were 20 foolish plans and a great deal of procrastination. Bishop Douglas of the London District suggested that the refugees could be housed at Old Hall Green, where there was an existing school. John Douglas, of course, is a very prominent figure in our story, and it might be worth saying a few words about him, especially since he's perhaps not particularly well known in these northern climes. Five years younger than Gibson, he had been appointed Vicar Apostolic of London in the same year, 1790, and was actually consecrated by him at Lulworth two weeks after Gibson's own consecration. His appointment was despite the protests of the Catholic Committee, who wanted a more like-minded candidate like Charles Barrington. But Douglas was no southerner. He was born in the North Yorkshire town of Yarm on the River Tees, and his family had Scottish roots. So his support for a new dowry in the south, as opposed to Gibson's northern plans, certainly can't be caricatured in terms of north versus south. Douglas had been educated at Dowie and was ordained around 1768, spending a brief time teaching at Valladolid before working as a mission priest in Yorkshire. As vicar apostolic, he lived in Holborn and often rather daringly wore his pectoral cross and amethyst ring and was described by one of his converts as a tall, thin man of a healthy look with a lively and good-natured countenance. For Bernard Ward, he was a man of unusual kindness of disposition, with a calmness of judgment and action in keeping with his Scotch descent, while by no means wanting in firmness when occasion demanded. One can certainly see how his personality might have clashed with that of Gibson. 
Despite his great concern for education, an anecdote concerning Douglas's examination of a candidate for priestly ordination reveals that clerical formation was still in need of some development. This is how the conversation went on. Bishop Douglas said to the candidate, did I not examine you 12 months ago for deacon orders? And the candidate said, yes, my lord, you examined me yourself in this very room. To which the bishop replied, I'll not trouble you any further. <laughs> as we have already mentioned, Douglas proposed Old Hall Green as the location for the new Dowie. It had an operating school established in 1769, but following in a long tradition that went back to a series of schools founded in the Winchester area during the 17th century. There was also a recently opened chapel, and so it had all the essential facilities for a Catholic college, and the juniors could easily fit into the existing classes. It was also easily accessible by those returning from France. Douglas sought the advice of John Milner, then a priest at Winchester, who supported his plans, although he wrote in October 1793, I could wish indeed that the seminary was as far removed as possible from London to prevent visits to that scene of corruption and also visitors from it. But that inconveniency will be removed surely by strict rules and discipline. New premises were needed urgently, and Gibson reluctantly agreed to accept Douglas's offer of housing northern students at Old Hall Green, even though, as president of Dowie, Gibson had had a low opinion of that academy, thinking its alumni far too worldly. Douglas famously wrote in his diary on the 12th of November, 1793, I took Messieurs William Beaucamp and John Law to Old Hall, and on the 16th, the Feast of St. Edmund, Archbishop of Canterbury, we commenced studies and established the new college there, a substitute for Dowie. Mr. Thomas Cook, who had been at Old Hall Green half a year, employed in teaching the children, and Mr. Devereux joined the other two. These four communicated at my hands. I said Mass, and after Mass exposed the Blessed Sacrament. Thus was the new college instituted under the patronage of St. Edmund, Archbishop of Canterbury, the aforementioned students recommencing their studies in divinity. By the end of February 1794, the following year, there was a community of 50 at Old Hall Green, including 21 from Dowie, six northerners included. Two members of the Dowie staff were present, Father William Coombs, late professor of rhetoric, and Deacon John Lee, who had been professor of syntax. A letter of George Haydock, dating from December 1793, stressed the continuities with Dowie. We rise at six o'clock, we go to the church at ye half hour, and meditate out of Bishop Chaloner in ye same manner as during ye retreat at Dowie. At a quarter to nine, a breakfast of milk and bread, tea on fasting days, study till one, when a dinner equal to what we had at Dowie is served up. Eventually at 10, we go to bed in the dormitory, for we have no better accommodations, and indeed we may think well to have so good when we consider the sufferings of our friends at Doulon, where they have only a little straw to sleep on and are forced to cover themselves with their old tattered coats. Indeed, the brethren in captivity in France were not forgotten 
and periodic votive masses were offered for their intentions. But space remains limited, and when 11 further fugitives arrived in London at the end of January 1794, Douglas sent them home since the new St. Edmunds simply couldn't accommodate them. The five northerners were invited by Gibson to proceed to the existing school at Tudhoe near Durham, run by an old collegian, Arthur Storey. With most of the dowry professors still in captivity at Doulon, he was helped by other returning exiles, including John Lingard. One of the lay students, Charles Walterton, later to win fame as a rather eccentric naturalist, claimed to be one of the great benefactors of Ushaw in that he helped to raid the pantry at night to feed those dowry students whom the housekeeper of the school disliked and neglected. There were similar um, tensions at St. Edmund's between the lay boys and the refugee seminarians, as well as between northerners and southerners. Accusations of bullying were raised on both sides. And to counter this, the boys were separated from the divines during 1794, the latter being lodged in a building north of Old Hall known as the Hermitage. The wooden outhouses and stables were also adapted, including the so-called The Ship, which was given that name because its timbers reminded the divines of the ship on which they sailed from France. The small cells inside were nicknamed coffins. Another building on the property was soon being used for classes and known as the school in the garden. Sadly, um, some of these buildings were demolished um, in the 20th century. Tensions continued to exist and matters came to a head over an incident involving a student and a rather unfortunate cat. A northern divine, Charles Saul, claimed one evening at the far side, as you do, that cats had a strength superior to men. A southern student, Thomas Pitchford, said he could provide the opposite if a cat was, uh, he could prove the opposite if a cat was provided. The following day, the boys went to a nearby pond and stretched a rope across the water, tying a terrified cat to one end and Mr. Pitchford to the other. The latter was to ask to turn his back on the cat in case he frightened the animal any further. As soon as he turned, he found himself being pulled into the water. Not, it seems, because the cat was the Samson of his race, but because of its human supporters energetically tugging the rope and pulling the boy into the water. When Douglas heard of this, he was angry at such rough behavior and thought the boys low, vulgar fellows and was pleased to call them a parcel of Lancashire blackguards. But then he would say that because he was a, 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 from those parts. Soon afterwards, the northern students petitioned Gibson that they be removed from Old Hall, complaining about insufficiency of food and lack of ecclesiastical spirit. By the end of 1794, they had been released, four of them famously leaving after Mass on All Saints' Day and walking off with their luggage in a wheelbarrow. How far the wheelbarrow went, I'm not quite sure. By this time, the northerners had found temporary um, accommodation not only at Tudhoe but at Pontop Hall, and then in October they moved to Crook Hall under the supervision of Thomas Eyer, assisted by Lingard. And by the end of um, that year, the community numbered 28 seniors and students. Thus, by the time the remaining students returned from Doulon in March 1795, there were two substitutes for Dowie, one at Old Hall Green and one at Crook Hall. 
The destination largely depended on the student's background and affinity, but conditions at both these institutions were cramped and spartan. As one of them wrote, after escaping from Egyptian slavery, we arrived safe at the land of promise. At the same time, I wish I could say it flowed with milk and honey. Added to the confusion, let us not forget, was another foundation inspired by the closure of the colleges overseas and the desire to provide a quality education at home, the school and seminary at Old Oscott. This was opened in 1794 under the presidency of John Boo, um, formerly president of the English seminary in Paris, and with a lay board of governors to ensure that the education offered was as extensive and up-to-date as possible. So there was clearly a lot of uncertainty in the minds of the vicars apostolic about the future of Catholic education on English soil. Should there be a single new dowry, or should there be several colleges in the distri different districts? Should there be continuity or something really completely new? A decisive moment came in July 1795 when Douglas and Stapleton visited William the Pitt the Younger, then Prime Minister, and William Cavendish Bentick, Duke of Portland, and a friend of Stapleton's, who was then Home Secretary. Before embarking on an ambitious scheme to open a new Catholic college, it was thought best to get the advice of the government. It's hard to think of this meeting being possible just a few decades previously, and it's testament to the growing sympathy towards English Catholics, especially in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Let's not forget either that Clause 15 of the Catholic Relief Act of 1791 actually prohibited the foundation of new Catholic colleges and convents. This was normally interpreted as meaning seminaries, and it became something of a dead letter with the influx of refugees from the continent. But caution still had to be observed, and there was an advantage if a project like that of replanting Dowie was seen as a re-foundation rather than something completely new. And so Pitt recommended that Old Hall Green would be the most sensible location for the enterprise. The erection of new buildings would be seen as the extension of the existing school rather than a brand new venture, and popular outcry would therefore be limited. The future of Old Hall Green seemed, at least in Douglas's mind, mind to be decided. Meanwhile, John Daniel, president of Dowie, paid a visit to Crook Hall at the end of June 1795. He favoured a northern site and accepted from Gibson the offer of the presidency of Crook Hall to stress its continuity with Dowie. But according to Henry Bannister, this was scarcely agreed upon when, behold, Mr. Gregory Stapleton comes posting down from London with a bullying letter from Bishop Douglas to Mr. Daniel, stating that while Bishop Gibson and some of his clergy were for, for the north, Bishop Wormsley and his clergy were for the south. Besides, Monsignor Erskine, who had urged the matter very strenuously, and at the solicitation of Lord Peter or Bishop Barrington, or perhaps Gregory Stapleton himself. So under all this pressure, Daniel resigned from Crook Hall almost immediately and Ayer was reinstated. But that continuity with Dowie was established. The success of the various projects for a new Dowie came down not only to vision, but above all, money. 
And a boost for both St. Edmund's and Crook Hall came from the annual papal pension originally intended for Dowie, which was now divided between them. But this only continued until 1799, by which time the Pope was a prisoner of the French. St. Edmund's received a generous bequest from John Soane, a wealthy Hampshire miller, who heard Dr. Pointer lament the downfall of Dowie. He said quietly to Pointer, Sir, would £10,000 help you to meet the difficulty? If so, you shall have it. And so in July 1795, he made over £2,000 to Douglas, and the rest would follow after his death, which rather conveniently occurred several months later. This made possible an ambitious set of buildings, the designs being trusted to James Taylor of Islington, who of course is also responsible for the buildings here at Ushaw. Although dismissed by Pugin as the priest factory, this new college was an impressive statement by the Catholic community. Sir Nicholas Pevsner wrote that the new buildings at Ware were an enterprise comparable in scale only with college work at Oxford and Cambridge, but far exceeding what English public schools did at that time. The foundation stone was laid in August 1795 and work was completed four years later. As far as Douglas was concerned, Old Hall Green had been reconstituted as the new Dowie. Stapleton was appointed the first president of St. Edmund's on the condition that he would resign when all the secular clergy bishops shall unite to form a general college at Old Hall Green. In the meantime, he would have the same powers for the internal government thereof as the president had in Dowie in, in the college. Gibson and the northern clergy showed little enthusiasm for the southern project. An alternative to Crook Hall was urgently needed. Conditions were cramped and the college ran at a deficit. And after the suspension of the papal pension, the salaries of professors had to be withheld and donations urgently collected from the laity. Gibson continued to procrastinate over the location and financing of his dowry of the north. It was not until October 1799 that an estate at Ushaw was purchased. On hearing of the plans uh, being realized here, Douglas urged Gibson not to begin construction in such expensive times, and he reported rumors that Napoleon might soon restore British property in France. And there was a further complication when uh, the family mansion of the Vavasseurs in Hazelwood um, was offered to Gibson for 12,000 pounds. However, work began on the buildings at Ushaw in 1804, and the new college was still unfinished in 1808 when the students moved in from their temporary alma mater of Crook Hall. And the first winter here was marred by an epidemic of typhus, which resulted in a death toll of five. Things were not easy down south either. The year after the opening of Ushaw, St. Edmund's had its so-called Great Affair. William Pointer, one of the Trent Durr, succeeded Stapleton as president in 1801, and two years later was consecrated as coadjutor to Douglas. He remained president for a future of a further 10 years, but his Episcopal duties led to long absences and a decline in discipline. The students rebelled in 1809, sparked off when Pointer's unpopular deputy, 
denied the boys a much-needed play day. Groups of students escaped the college. One group, we read, proceeded to Haddam and there rioted in an inn the whole evening. They drank, they smoked, they broke every bowl and glass served up and returned through Standon, alarming every inhabitant in the place. They reached the college at nine o'clock armed with thick sticks and proceeded to their respective apartments. One of the leaders, one should mention, was John Talbot, the future 16th Earl of Shrewsbury and great patron of Pugin. The authorities continue to keep an anxious eye on the original English Catholic property in France. A brief period of peace in 1797 allowed two priests to spend several months in Saint-Omer and Dowie. But after two decades of campaigning, the French government finally handed over nearly three million pounds in compensation to the British commissioners to cover all claims made against it. The claims brought by Dowie and other Catholic institutions were never awarded, partly because the British authorities felt that the money could not be handed over for purposes considered to be superstitious. And the rumour persists that the money was used to either furnish Windsor Castle or pay off the debt on the new Brighton Pavilion. Now, I visited the Royal Pavilion a few weeks ago, and as I walked around admiring the bamboo fretwork, the palm tree columns, and the huge chandelier in the banqueting room, which is hung from the ceiling by a silver dragon, I asked myself, magnificent though all this is, what might the beleaguered English Catholic community have spent all this money on? Perhaps there might have been bamboo fretwork here at Ushaw. In describing this narrative of replantation, I'm coming to the end now, it's important, of course, not to be overly Dowie-centric. We shouldn't forget the other British colleges that had to weather these stormy times as well. Those in the Iberian Peninsula largely managed to continue, and the English College in Rome survived until 1798, when it was suppressed. But the college was kept largely intact and reopened in 1818 due to a combination of good luck, changing fortunes, and solid management by trusted Italian officials. The Irish, of course, lost many of their colleges, not only at Dowie, but Leuven, Antwerp, Tournai, Lille, Bordeaux, Toulouse, Nantes, and Paris. The foundation of the Royal Catholic College at Maynooth, of course, in 1795, was a direct result of this. The Irish bishops petitioned the British government for permission to establish such a seminary, and this was granted along with the promise of an annual grant, the government being keen to win Irish support during a time of war with their traditional ally. The fate of the Irish College in Paris is also an interesting one. In 1801, the French united the Irish, Scots, and English colleges as far as they existed and formed a new entity called the British Establishment, which reopened the Irish College in 1805. It first acted as a school, but after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, became an Irish seminary once again. The crisis posed by the French Revolution led to a great deal of disagreement and procrastination on behalf of the ecclesiastical authorities, much of it preserved for posterity in the boxes of our Catholic archives. Yet, as Bernard Ward put it, 
that which seemed at the time so great a calamity to the church in England in the end turned out to be a blessing. In his view, it was doubtful whether anything short of absolute necessity would have led the colleges to be refounded in England, not only because of the financial and practical difficulties, but because the superiors had come to believe that their far-off situation was a positive advantage for them, as it freed the students from the distractions to which they would have been liable nearer to home. Nevertheless, despite the clause in the 1791 Relief Act forbidding the foundation of colleges and convents in England, there was a growing realization that Catholic education could potentially be offered as effectively at home as overseas. Recent scholarship has suggested, as a result, that the French Revolution acted as a catalyst for change rather than the cause of change. And it makes us ponder one of those great what-if questions of this 450th anniversary year. If it hadn't been for the French Revolution, how long would the colleges have remained overseas? Would we still be sending our seminarians to Dowie, just as we still are to Valladolid and Rome? Or would Dowie have become a sort of Hogwarts-style public school in France, publicizing to prospective parents its venerable traditions? It's interesting to note also that the replantation of Alma Mater Duocensis marked an important stage in the bishop's dealings with the college. The episcopate had had limited influence over the colleges of the Catholic diaspora, and yet the foundations at Old Hall Green and Ushaw were in many ways episcopal foundations. It would be overly cynical to talk of Douglas and Gibson seeing the revolution as an opportunity to increase their authority, at least over the seminaries, but this was in many ways an indirect result. Liam Chambers has noted that the eclipse of the Irish colleges allowed the Irish bishops to exercise control over the system of clerical formation for the first time in the history of the Irish church. And the same could to some extent be argued for the English bishops, although there were many constitutional battles still to come. And so the spirit and mission of the English college at Dowie was successfully replanted in England at Ware and Ushaw, despite many hurdles and disagreements along the way. And while the traditions of Dowie continued, um, so a new identity also came to be formed, making a major contribution to the newfound confidence of the Second Spring and the development of modern English Catholicism. Thank you very much.